Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name. And I too welcome you here this morning. We're glad for you that aren't with us regularly. We're glad you're here this morning as well. Welcome you to worship with us. So, uh, lest you think we as ministry are confused, we're not. Uh, we just had a snowstorm and a bit of a mix-up in the preaching schedule, so I'm up here again quite quickly. So bear with me. Well, last time I was here um, and uh, talked to you, um, we talked about thinking soberly about the holiday season, and I and I mentioned in the outset of that sermon that perhaps I should have, first of all, had a talk on just the thought of soberness and what it means to live, live in a sober way. So indulge me this morning. I plan to do that. Um, maybe this should have came first, but it's coming second. And I would like for you to turn with me again to Titus 2, and we are going to think this morning a bit about what it means to live soberly. I'm going to read the, the chapter here, Titus 2, and you just think about how many times this word sober comes up here, and then we'll, we'll move on from there. Titus chapter 2. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behaviors becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their husbands, their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glory glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Of course, the text comes from the verse 12 there, where it talks about that we should live soberly. As I, as I mentioned the last time, and I was quickly recap, when we think of sober, we generally think of someone that's not drunk or somebody that's a bit somber or thoughtful. Perhaps that's what comes to mind whenever we think of soberness. And in, indeed, Webster's gives those, those meanings. Not drunk, marked by temperance, moderation, or seriousness, or not showing excessive or extreme qualities of fancy, emotion, or prejudice. In my Greek-English New Testament that I have at home, um, it translates this word soberly to sensibly, 
which I think really does uh, encapsulate what the word sober, sober as often used in the scriptures does mean. There's actually two words in Greek that's translated sober. The one does indeed mean to abstain from wine. Most places, a few places it would have the idea of being discreet or watchful. And then there's another word that talks about or would have the indication of being of a safe or sound mind or moderate in opinion or passion, discreet. Okay, so that's the, the word that's translated here in our text. Clear thinking, and you remember I talked about that uh, a couple of weeks ago, clear thinking, sensibly. The fact of the matter is that soberness is not a quality that's in great supply in society. Uh, here and there, I think it can be found, but rarely. And I would say outside of Christianity or a Christian person or a biblically-based mindset, it can't really be found in its biblical form as talked about here, here in this text. So what I'd like to... Uh, just launch into this and, and give you some basic observations, first of all, from this text and maybe a few other places in Scripture about what it means to be sober-minded. So number one, I think we can clearly deduct from this Scripture here that barring a real encounter with Christ, there is really no hope of sober thinking. Just look at verse 11 there. For the grace of God... That brings salvation appears to all men, teaching us. And it teaches us different things. And one of the things that it teaches us is how to live soberly. And I like the, pro the progression. We think of grace as being this unmerited favor that God bestows on man when he reaches down and he offers him salvation through nothing that he can possibly do to earn that in and of himself. And we understand that. So that grace appears to all men. And during this season, we often think of, uh, of our friend John the Baptist. And he had this to say in his sermons when he was preaching. He said, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. God is an equal opportunity employer in this thing of salvation. No man is discriminated against. It's open for all. So this grace of salvation appears to all men. Isn't that great? We could stop right there. But the verse continues, and this grace begins a teaching process. And one of the things, as I mentioned already, is that it teaches us that we should live soberly. Something I found interesting, by way of example, remember back with me in, in the account in Mark 5, and I think it's recorded a few other places as well, where there's this 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 demoniac that lives in the tombs and he's running around. People were scared of him in the country and so they let him out there in the graveyard and uh, he, just, he just has the run of things. They try binding him with chains and they can't, it, you know, they can't restrain him. And you remember the story. Jesus shows up and um, he casts out those demons out of that man and it goes into that, those pigs and the pigs go into the, into, the, into the body of water there. And it says that when the dust had all settled and the people came out to see what had happened. There was no pigs, but this demoniac, it says, was sitting there in his right mind. Now that phrase, in his right mind, is the exact same word here in this text 
that is translated sober. So we had a sober person. Is, is that not a great illustration of how sobriety is, comes to be in a person's life? It doesn't happen until the man has an encounter with Jesus and suddenly he's in his right mind. The prodigal son, another good example. A man that was not thinking soberly. And once again, it's interesting to me that pigs are involved. I don't know if there was any lesson here or not, but he finds himself suddenly by a pit. Not suddenly, there was a, there was a trajectory and a time that he lapsed. But sometime he comes to the pig pen and he's sitting there and he begins to think soberly. And that whole sober process results in him going back to his father's house. Sober thinking, I'm going to suggest today, as I thought of it and I, and I thought of how Paul talks about it here in Titus and these two examples I just gave you, can it not be a gauge of the authenticity of my salvation. No real sober thinking occurs in the mind of an unbeliever or a black or a backslider, except, except when he finds himself with a pig pen and he says, I can't do this anymore. This is not working out. This is not a good trajectory. And he finds himself going back to his father's house. Bottom line, do not expect an unbeliever to have a sober outlook on life. This is, quite frankly, why unbelievers tend to engage in all manner of unhealthy and non-productive behavior. Why? They can't think soberly. Number two, another observation here, though. Like many, many virtues, and I guess I would dare say all virtues in the Christian's life, According to the text that we have here in, in Titus 2, this, this thing of being sober doesn't necessarily come naturally after a person has been born again and has received Christ. Indeed, it gives him the, it gives him a desire to develop that virtue of, of soberness. But why, if it would be natural, would it say in the first about six verses, every age group that is listed there, save the, the older ladies. However, if you would look at the, at the word discreet, it's basically the same word, is exhorted to be sober. If it was totally just natural and we just would become sober-minded, we wouldn't be exhorted to be that way and to teach others to be that way. And I find it also interesting in, in uh, Titus here in chapter 1 and also in Paul's letter to Timothy, one of the specific characteristics that he tells uh, these two young men to be on the, the lookout for as they were establishing elders in the churches and so on, he said, be, be cautious that these people are sober-minded. And so I think that's another thing we can, uh, we can deduct. So it comes through, first of all, the first step, the initial step is we have to have experienced the salvation of God. But then it's something we need to continually work on, continually strive for, continually, um, remember that sobriety is going to be a big deal in, uh, in our Christian life. The third thing I'd like to point out, and it doesn't really come from this text, but I think it's something we have to make clear. Is sobriety and common sense the same thing? Well, 
To a degree, yes. There are certain there are certain times on the road it shares the same lane, okay? But there are times on the road it's widely different. It's not in the same lane anymore. And here's why. When you think of what common sense is, it is when you look at a situation or something and you try to be as objective about this thing as possible. And in many ways, that's what sober thinking is. It's being objective and uh, clear-headed about a certain thing or whatever's under discussion. However, sometimes common sense will say, I should do this. But because sobriety, true sobriety, is based on the Word of God, it will not follow common sense. Common sense says something, says something like this. If someone comes up and knocks your lights out, you knock his back. That's common sense. That's not being sober, though. Okay. So biblical sobriety and common sense aren't necessarily the same thing. However, in some circumstances, they will come to the same conclusions. Which is why you will occasionally... Uh, encounter people that aren't necessarily Christians that strike you as being sober-minded, but really what it is is common sense. Okay, they, they do sometimes share share some uh, share some ground. I would point I would point out just quickly uh, Peter uh, whenever um, those soldiers came that night in the garden and um, arrested Jesus. Common sense said, "Get your sword out, Peter." And Jesus said, put it back again. There's a difference between common sense and sobriety. All right. So now let's, uh, let's consider this question. Why is sobriety such an important virtue and something that we as Christians should pursue? All right. I don't know if you thought of it or not, but there's another word here in Titus 2 that showed up about as many times as the word sober. And that was the word doctrine. Three times in this reading that we read the word doctrine. And Paul, in his writings to Timothy and Titus, is very concerned about doctrine, sound doctrine. In fact, 15 times he refers to sound doctrine and how we can attain this. What I'd like to draw from this is that without a sober thought process, we will be very vulnerable to unsound and unbalanced doctrine. Um, we come to that conclusion right out of the gate in verse 1. But speak thou the things that become or that will promote sound doctrine. And right away, it's interesting that the things he jumps on right away is that the aged men should be sober, the old ladies should be sober, the young men, the young, the young ladies, and so on. In verse 10, he talks about adorning this doctrine. You know, there's many ways that Satan will try to uh, to trip us up, to get us to fall for unsound doctrine. And many times he will use a partial gospel of some sort. Perhaps an overemphasis on a doctrine, taking it to a, an extreme at the expense of another. Some sort of an unbalanced approach to doctrine, I think, is, is many times what, what trips people into unsound doctrine. And that's why it's so subtle. And believe me, unsound doctrine is not unique to our generation. Um, they were grappling with it right here in, in the book of Titus. Uh, that, that has been something every generation has had to face. It's been different, been, had different faces through time, but it's been something everybody has had to face. 
how do we how do we spot or how is sobriety here going to help us uh, in this thing of of uh, spotting or assuring us up against unsound unbalanced doctrine i couldn't help think of the apostle john remember with me back in in the book of mark where there's this man, apparently, that was uh, following Jesus and his disciples around at least close enough that John had the opportunity to observe the guy. And he said, um, it was specifically John, he said to Jesus, he said, uh, there's a guy around here that's casting out devils in your name, and we rebuked him. Now, now remember what Jesus said to, to John and the disciples at that point. He said, um, you shouldn't have done that. He said, because that man is doing it in my name, and he said, he's not against, he's not against me, he's actually for me. And I honestly think that took uh, the disciples by surprise. They thought that they were helping Jesus, right? We're going to, um, we're going to um, come after this guy that isn't following us like we are, following you, Jesus, like we are. But he's casting out devils in your name. And apparently he was successful. Apparently. A person would deduct that from, from the... Um, from the reading. But Jesus reprimanded the disciples. And I have a feeling John thought a lot about that. Just, just knowing the kind of person that scripture portrays John as, as somewhat of a thoughtful person. Um, it shows up again in his writings and his epistles. I'm going to read to you a few verses out of his epistles where he addresses this once more. This thing of, um, of, um, being Succumbing to unsound doctrine. Second John 1 8, it reads like this. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If any come unto you, and bring not this doctrine, this doctrine of Christ, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. In 1 John 4, 1, there's a very um, familiar verse, and he beseeches his readers there. He says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Sober clear-headedness is needed to decipher again between this thing as of who is for us and who is against us and who we should bid Godspeed to and who we should not. And I had to think of of this and and kind of the time we live in, and I'm like, you know, I, I mentioned how every generation has had to grapple with this, and I think that's clear. I don't think that any of us would argue that. However, I had to think of the of the um, when Paul wrote to I believe it was Timothy, and he said that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse as as time comes to a close. And I think we would have to agree that we're probably seeing a bit of that. Probably, probably our biggest challenge when I thought of of uh, unsound doctrine and the proliferation of that and the need for sobriety. As we try to shore ourselves and, and, and rest, rest this, this unsound doctrine, the potential of that into our lives anyway. I think probably the thing that, 
that is the most um, challenging in our times is the with the with the inception of the internet and as many good things as 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 much as we appreciate that let's put it that way and you know this very sermon will be going out over the internet and it, it can be a a um, a platform for a lot of good teaching and a lot of good things so i think we all understand that but the equal downside of it is it has given a platform some, for some very, very unsound teaching that can be proliferated and can be spread at a speed that I think not too many years ago would not have happened. And so you have this, you have many a sermon, many a blog, many of this, many of that, that we can, we can, it's at our fingertips. And it's, it's so close to right, like we talked about in the Sunday school lesson. Maybe it's 75, maybe it's 80, maybe it's 95% right even. What about that? It, it's going to take sobriety. It, it will. It's going to take some sober thinking for us to get through that and not be succumbed to unsound doctrine. And I think also, um, thinking about sober thinking here and, and John's experience there in Mark, where he said he, uh, he, he was wanting Jesus to give him accolades for re- rebuking this, this fellow. You know, isn't it a temptation sometimes to ostracize people who are basically not against us and to go crazy over the questionable? It, has anything changed? You know, think about that a bit. Let's be sober. The other thing I think that sobriety will do for us is that it will ultimately shield us from spiritual death. In Peter, he writes about a roaring lion that seeks to devour us. And he said the way we're going to overcome or not be devoured by the roaring lion is to be sober. That's his words. He says, be sober, because there's this roaring lion. I couldn't help but think but what the proverb writer had to say when he said, can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned? What sober-minded person would literally take fire and hold it against his chest and expect he won't be burned? You say that's just ludicrous. Silly, ridiculous, no-thinking person would do that. And yet, there's the temptation, and we see people do it, unfortunately, where they will do that very thing that the Proverbs writer is actually trying to uh, convey to us through this, through this uh, little parable. And they will take things, they will order their lives in a way that is clearly unscriptural, and they will expect it will succeed. And they will try that again and again and again. And ultimately we'll end up in the clutches of the roaring lion that Peter talks about. Let's be sober so we can avoid spiritual death from that roaring lion. Okay, the next point I'd like to consider is how is sober thinking then developed and matured? And again, turning back here in our text that we read, I I alluded to it before, but let's let's look at it a little bit more closely. The the platform that Paul first addresses here uh, when he's addressing this thing of, of being sober is that it is going to be the older men and women in the church here 
that is going to be exuding and expressing this quality of sobriety, and they're going to be willing to teach the younger. And it's going to be the expected course that the younger are going to be willing to listen. Now, that's not asking for a lot, is it? Old men and old ladies are going to be sober, and they're going to teach, and the young people are going to listen. Wow, that sounds like a, a real, um, a real uh, success story here. Well, it certainly, it certainly can be, and I'm not saying that it never happens. I think, indeed, it does happen. But uh, just the fact that he had to put this in print tells me that we have to make it happen. It won't happen on its own. So I think we need older brothers and sisters, men and women, in our churches that are clear-headed, that are temperate, have a serious outlook on life. You know, age has a way of tempering a person. And with age, generally comes wisdom, generally speaking. And I'm thinking of this from a godly point of view, so I think it's, it's safe to say that. A tempering and a degree of wisdom that comes with age. I don't know how you find it, but I personally do not find myself drawn to an intemperate, silly-minded, older person. For some reason, that does have a bit of a retraction to me. And every time I think of that, I, I, my mind goes back to one instant, and I don't know why. Maybe it was just, I don't know. But I just think of a, an older gentleman that used to hang out there in Claremont at the service center, and he, he enjoyed nothing more than to flirt with the, uh, with the cashiers, the young cashiers there. And it was such a repulsion to me to go in and watch that take place. It just so untoward. I mean, it was kind of the epitome of, of not a sober person. Well, I don't think we have those types of people in our churches. I, I certainly hope not, not to that degree. But we need older people who will live and exemplify a circumspect, sober life. And then, to build on what Paul's teaching here, it is then propagated when the older people impart that observation and wisdom to the rising generation. And I do think that there's a word here in verse 2 that is going to help with that. The aged men be sober, and they are also patient. Okay? I think there has to be some of both as we, as we try to um, impart this virtue of sobriety, to teach sobriety to the rising generation. I think we need old people who are settled and satisfied, not easily ruffled, think positively yet clearly. I think we need old people that are willing to live temperately, even though their pocketbooks would allow them to indulge if they jolly well wished. I think that that is a true test of how sober we are. We could do a thing, but just for the example, we choose not to. And I thank God that we have great examples in our communities of older couples who grow old gracefully, love each other, love the church, love God, and are a great example of sober living. And I thank God for that. Another thing that is going to propagate sobriety is when we as the younger realize the inherent experience and growth 
and godliness of our elders and are willing to pattern after that. If somebody's going to teach, somebody has to be taught. And somebody has to take that teaching and lay it to heart if it's going to do any good. In Leviticus 19.32, there's a, there's a verse that I find quite interesting. It says like this, Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of the old man and fear thy God. It ties together that thing of having the honor for the older person right along with fearing God. The two are the same in that verse. And there's a lot of truth to that. Peter picks this up in 1 Peter 5 when he says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourself unto the elder. And then he goes on to say, Yea, all of you, be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. There's probably no better example of the outcome of what happens when one does not do that than our good friend Rehoboam back in, uh, in the book of Kings, I believe it is, where he got two, two sets of advice. You remember, he calls in the old man and he calls in the young man, and the question's the same. Should I tax these people more than they're currently taxed, or should I lighten it up, or what should I do? The old man came back, and they had a piece of advice that had Rehoboam followed would have been a, would have been a great piece of advice. But nope, he went with his peers. He decided to go with that. Not a sober choice. And we know that we know the, the rest of the story. He ended up with a rent kingdom and a very, very small portion of that kingdom because of that choice. Now, granted, we know the backstory, and we realize that was God's will, if you will. It was his will that that happened. But it was because of this grievous choice that Rehoboam made that it happened. Number four, sober thinking will be developed only when we are willing to lay aside ungodliness and worldly lust. And that comes out clearly in verse 12. The grace of God brings salvation, teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and then we live soberly. John tells us that the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life are the epitome of ungodliness and worldly lust. So the bottom line question is this. Am I living to satisfy lust, which is basically, if it feels good to one of the five senses, senses, I'm going to indulge in it? Or am I... Am I sober enough to realize that probably always, probably always, if I'm going to just indulge for the, for the mere reason of satisfying one of the five senses, that will not end up in sober living. I couldn't help but think of uh, just yesterday, I picked up a paper where once again, there was this article on the opioid crisis in our country. You know, I just had to think to myself again, why would a person, why would a person do a thing like that? You know, I understand that there's, I understand how it happens, but what's the point in taking a, a drug, okay, indulging in a drug that I know is going to, uh, going to ruin my life, and I'm going to do that for some sort of a high or a kick or whatever, and, and again, it's, it's a it's an example of wanting that that high that comes to it to to um, gratify one of my five senses or all of them or however that may be, and 
somehow I think that I'm going to, the, the consequences aren't going to come and, and knock at my door. So that's not, that's not sober thinking. And again, if you want a biblical illustration, uh, probably Esau is probably about as good of an illustration of a person that did that as, as anybody we have in the Bible. I mean, think, think clearly here. You come in from the field and you're hungry. Okay, and I understand you're cold and hungry. You, you want something to eat, all right? But there's bean soup there, friends, just bean soup. And what clear-headed person would trade a bowl of bean soup, a mess of pottage, for a birthright? You don't do that. That, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Surely you could live, you know, even an hour longer to fix your own bowl of soup if it came down to that. Surely you could. No, Esau, he was quite willing to uh, to trade that. He made that trade. But you know, there was a day came whenever he regretted that. The fog lifted, and he began to think soberly. And he regretted it. And the Hebrew writer tells us, that although we don't have a biblical account of it, the Hebrew writer tells us that the day came that he sought it carefully with tears. Now, when you're seeking something carefully with tears, you're pretty sober at that point. But it could not be recovered. Folks, let's be careful about gambling long-term regret for a moment of gratification. The Hebrew writer goes on to talk about running a race. And he said, there's two things that we should do when running this race. He said, lay aside sin and lay aside the weights. Those two things. And again, think, think with me here. Who would run a race and say, okay, now before I run the race, I'm going to strap on a 20-pound weight to both legs and both arms. Now I'm ready to run the race. I'm going to add 80 pounds. Now I'm going to run the race. It's ridiculous. And yet, how many times will we do the very same thing spiritually? Maybe the thing isn't exactly a sin, but it's a weight. Sober people don't add weights when they're running a race. Okay? Let's not do that. Let's think soberly. Number five, sober thinking will help me to have a proper evaluation of myself and others. And this is probably about as hard as it gets. But uh, in the book of Romans, Paul says this, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. According as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. We tend to extremes here. And Satan loves both extremes. Either we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, and that's probably the the greater um, temptation. Or we think more poorly of ourselves than we ought to think. A sober person is one who can think clearly about himself. And you talk about a task now. Is there any one of us that could truly say... I can think clearly about myself, right? But folks, take this take this to heart. Just the fact that we have this verse here should give every one of us pause. Basically what it's telling us is it is ludicrous for, for me to think that I can see every issue more clear than you can. I have a perspective. You have a perspective. But to say your perspective is more clear than my perspective is not thinking soberly. That is why... God has not allowed us to live in islands by ourselves. We'd end up being destructive to ourselves. That's why we have churches. That's why we have brotherhoods. 
so that we can help each other to think soberly. Let's do that. Let's think soberly whenever we think that we have the answer. We may have a part of the answer, but probably there's another perspective. Okay, so surely there are some rewards to sober thinking. And let's think about a few of these as we wrap this up. So what, are, what, is, what is the result? What is the reward of sober thinking? Well, to kind of come back around and um, talk about something I talked about a little bit before, but this is also the reward. I told you that sober thinking will guard us against sound doctrine. But that's also a reward. Aren't you glad that you didn't have to come to church here this morning and have your guards up because you were afraid that you might hear some unsound doctrine today? I like what Paul said in uh, verse 5 here. He said, um, how's he put this? He says that the word of God be not blasphemed. You know, when the lack of clear-headed thinking prevails, um, many times you and I are the only Bibles that many people read, and, and you know that. And if you listen closely to people, many times they are turned off at Christianity Because of what they see, it does not portray true blue Christianity. And so the word of God is inadvertently blasphemed um, because we are not capable of living soberly. On the positive, though, it says in verse 8 that, um, I think it's verse 8, yeah, it talks about um, that, People that are of the contrary part having no evil thing to say of of us. If we can indeed live sober-mindedly and soberly, and that kind of prevails throughout our life, people will not be able to poke any holes at that. It will end up being something that will stop the evil accusations. And I like even more what he says in verse 10. He says that you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now, I know that's not exactly in the context of soberness, but I think it applies. Think about what adornment is. Adornment is a small amount of something, whether it's makeup or jewelry. That's kind of what our our minds go to immediately. But it can even be other things. It can be little decor in our houses or just that touch of this somewhere or the other that makes it, while it's small, it makes a profound impact on the viewer. Um, it's, it's, it's adornment, okay? What happens when a thing becomes too adorned? It becomes unattractive as well. Now, I'm not sure if that part of it applies here in, in our text or not, but I like to think as, of adornment as, um, as, of sobriety as being adornment. So we have the doctrine of God, and when people can clear-headedly navigate life with sobriety, he actually makes that doctrine attractive to others. See, and I'd like to think of it in that way. Are we adorning God's doctrine? Is people finding it attractive because of what I of my sober living? Number two, another reward: sober living will shield us from making many poor choices and decisions in our personal and collective lives. I don't know if you've ever wondered, but I have at times, why people or groups of people have fallen for some clearly ridiculous ideas 
or paths in life. And I think when it boils right down to it, it was a lack of sobriety, a lack of clear-headed thinking, sober, biblical thinking. And that can come at very great cost, very great cost. In 1 Peter 4, 7, Peter says this, he says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. I think that thing of soberness, watchfulness, and prayerfulness I think that is a is a trilogy that we should take very very seriously. Sober thinking also always requires that we spend adequate time in prayer and be in a constant state of alert. And I think that's probably a prerequisite for a lot of sober thinking. Number 3 another reward sober thinking results in more righteousness and godliness. And again I point out the sequence here in our text that you may live soberly, righteously, and godly. I like what Isaiah 32, 17 says, The works of righteousness are peace, and the effects of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. Follow the, the trail. Are you experiencing peace, quietness, and assurance in your life? If you are, praise God. It's probably uh, points to the fact that you're a sober, sober person. If you are not... Perhaps it's because you're not thinking clear-headedly about things. Perhaps. And number four. Sober-mindedness will temper our earthly pursuits and cause us to measure everything against eternal reward. And pretty near every, every verse here we've read today ties something like this together. In verse 13, it talks about living soberly and looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter in Peter 1.13 says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 4 he says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober. You know, Paul was a real example of a sober-minded person. He lists in one of his letters all the things that he had gone through. He said, you know, I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been left for dead. I've been beat. I've been this. I've been that. I've been hungry. I've been cold. All these things. And, and you look at that and you say, I mean, none of us looks at that and says, wow, boy, I wish I, I, I just wish I were Paul. You don't look at that passage and wish for that. We, we don't. Let's be honest. But Paul, in his letters to Corinth, he says this. He said, I call it a light affliction. He said, this light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh a far more exceeding weight of glory. Isn't that a wonderful verse? And, and folks, let's be sober-minded here. So whatever your problem is in your life, whatever it is in my life, okay, it, it probably pales in comparison to what Paul went through, probably. I'm not exactly sure what we all might be facing. But we're probably all facing something. If we can view it in a sober way as just a light affliction, that's just but for a moment, and look at that far more exceeding weight of glory, suddenly everything, everything jives, everything makes sense. And, and these small things that bug us just become a little burr under the saddle. And truly, I believe that it's going to be sober thinking that will ultimately 
bring us to that eternal reward. So I'd like to just leave you with that challenge. Think soberly. Um, keep on. If you're not, start. And truly it will be what brings us safely to the other side.